Hi there, I'm Michael Marvash, and this is The Dead Man's Forest, a weekly conversation about existence, meaning, and the unique lessons that we each have to share with one another. This week's conversation is with a friend of mine, Jason Young, whom I actually met on the Death Valley Vision Quest that I frequently speak about. Jason is the author of a master's thesis that I have mentioned in earlier conversations, and it is from him that I have borrowed such wonderful terms as the more-than-human world to refer to the totality of nature that we exist as a part of. And so I am excited to share with you some of his thoughts directly in today's conversation. With that, I will let Jason say a few words of his own by way of self-introduction. I'm someone who is concerned about what's happening in the world, and I am someone who gives it a lot of thought, and most recently, I finished a master's degree wherein I looked at my worldview and how I move through the world and tried to determine how, if at all, that worldview could be altered through a vision fast experience. And I explored the implications of, of what happened after I, I went through a vision fast experience. So I certainly came back from that experience changed and where that has left me now is with this idea that the worldviews we carry actually create the worlds we live in. And likewise, the worlds we live in create the worldviews we carry in this sort of reciprocal relationship and for me, what's really exciting about that is it's, it's a very empowering idea in, insofar as you as an individual can actually change the world even just by beginning with how you think, how you see, how you perceive. And uh, to me, that's a really exciting idea. And that's kind of what I'm working with now. Okay, that's cool. And... If I recall correctly, the genesis of that uh, work that you did on that thesis was around our, and I say our, I mean, I mean human civilization or society's impact on the environment. Is that, would that be a good summary or would you say it differently? Yeah, no, that, that's really, that was really the driving impulse for it. It was in the school of sustainability and the environment. So I, I really took it in that direction and explored some of the implications to that end because yeah i really see the environmental crisis though i don't really like that term so much anymore um and i can get into that in a, in a minute but i i see the environmental crisis as being the sort of issue of our time almost or at least the manifestation of perhaps a more core issue of our time uh, and when I say our in that sense, it's not the, it's not 
that's mostly a Western issue in many ways. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so I do I I did apply my efforts to in that direction to try to understand what is this thing we call the environmental crisis and where is it coming from and what can we do about it? Because I spent a lot of time trying to figure it out from a utilitarian rational problem solving perspective and I've done work in sustainability studies and environmental management. And what I came to find is that these types of solutions, though completely necessary, um, are just band-aids that actually don't address the core issues that lead to the environmental crisis. Um, So I just wanted to dig a little deeper into myself and belief structures and worldview to, to determine, you know, why we make the decisions we do and what impact that has in the world. At this point, I, as I always do, told the story of the dead man's forest, of the vision that I had while I was in the desert. I've cut it out here for brevity since our conversation went rather long anyway. And of course, the question that I asked him after explaining the vision was, what unique lessons would you like to share with the world? So, wow, that's that's a big question. Um, <laughs> and I guess to, to begin answering it, I would just say it's kind of what we were earlier talking about before we were recording. Um, I felt like when I came back from the Vision Fast, from the desert, that you know, I came back to my thesis and I I had all these ideas to unpack and I wrote up hundreds of words about it and, and all that and unpacked these ideas and through literature edit and philosophy. But what I kind of realized was that while that matters and definitely has an effect, what really came back from the desert, I felt, was a changed person, was was just me as a changed person and that my movement through the world would have implications that I am not conscious of and could never be conscious of. Hmm. Um, so to, I mean, we can definitely talk about ideas and, and use the word lesson, I think lessons. Um, but I felt that somehow that when I came back to, to reduce it down to that level was to somehow diminish what I had learned there. Um, although I did do exactly that. And I think that process has benefit, uh, which, which we can definitely talk about as well. But for me, yeah, I suppose the, the lesson that I'm unpacking still is what I was alluding to earlier, this idea that worldviews build worlds and worlds build worldviews. And I'm really trying to understand that from a lot of different perspectives. And uh, again, I think it's an empowering idea that gives people sort of permission and power to to make changes in their lives that that don't necessarily have to be these grand gestures of of solving global warming or or you know you can start on the meditation mat or in a philosophy book or in a conversation with a friend or in an act of kindness. And I think I think that's really important. 
This was a particularly challenging conversation to edit because as I was re-listening, I felt like Jason had said something pretty important there that meant a lot to him. And I felt like my forthcoming response inadvertently directed the conversation away from that. Like in a way, I had not been listening hard enough to what he was saying. Thankfully, we did come back to this lesson that has been so important in his life. We just got there by a bit of a wandering path that I don't think... So I think I have um, I have a bit of an advantage over other people who may be listening to the podcast and that I've read your thesis, and so I, you've kind of taken me on a bit of the journey that you went on in thinking about as you say, how worldviews shape worlds and worlds shape worldviews. But can you try and give a little, either talk a little more or give some examples of what you mean by that so mm-hmm. that people can kind of be a little more aligned with, with the journey that you've been on? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I can definitely try my best. So typically we think we think of the world as sort of being just there just external from us, that it has an objective of existence. You know, this is, this is like what the scientific perspective reveals about nature. What science essentially seeks to achieve is determining that those parts of nature that are the same for all observers in all times and at all places. So it's trying to reduce nature down to this sort of core objective truth, which is a valuable pursuit insofar as it, uh, you know, has lifted, like, I mean, the, the proof's in the pudding. It's, if you look at the world we live in today, there's a lot of good that has come of that perspective, but it also has had a lot of negative symptoms. And I see the environmental crisis as being one of those symptoms because it has led to this objectifying relationship with nature where we feel that we are beings that are, you know, in an environment moving through um, an externally objectified reality. Mm-hmm. So that's sort of what I would, you know, sort of call the, the, the Western worldview or, or sort of the, yeah, I suppose the Western worldview is for this conversation. Yeah. But what I talk about when I say worldviews build worlds and worlds build worldviews, uh, let's just start with embodied cognition. So this is kind of the idea that we don't necessarily, we, we co-constitute our environment through our perception. So, you know, if you have a thought or a feeling or you experience nature in some aspect through your perception, it's mediated by your belief structures. So a tree, for example, to, to you or I will mean very different things. And likewise, a tree to you know, a tribal Amazonian, say, might be totally different because their worldview would view that tree in a different way. And because your worldview views things in a different way, you then act in a different way and 
alter that environment in a different way. So viewed from a larger perspective, it's this, it's actually this reciprocal relationship where uh, we are co-constituting our reality. Okay. And, and so I just want to clarify. It's kind of a mouthful. Right. Yeah, no, I, I, so let's, let's uh, allow me to, to try and break that apart if I can. So by co-constitute, you mean we, we share our environment with, um, with other things with, you know, your example was trees. There are, there are things in our environment, trees or houses or tables or um, birds, animals, whatever. And what we perceive those things to be is not objectively what they are. That's simply mm-hmm. our interpretation of them. And someone else's interpretation based on what you say is a worldview, which I'm taking to mean like all of their past history and lessons and associations and, and all of the experiences that they've had, what, what they perceive that thing to be may be different than what we perceive a thing to be. Mm-hmm. Here's maybe an example. Mm-hmm. Tell me if this is wrong. Um, I'm sitting in my apartment, which is a part of a house, and I see this structure, and I think it's a house. That's where people live. Someone who comes from a society who has never lived, who has never seen a house, who doesn't live in a house, who just you know sleeps out in the forest or whatever, would see this structure and think it's just a, I don't know, a, a big box. Mm-hmm. Is that a reasonably decent? Example? Yeah, that's right. And and even further, a bird sees your house as a potential place to build a nest, mm-hmm. and maybe a worm doesn't even see your house. So this idea actually extends into the more than human world as well and there's people looking at these types of of ways of perceiving um starting as far back as mid 19th century realizing that other beings are also perceiving the world through their own i don't know if we necessarily want, want to call it a worldview because that gets into the idea of culture but what this uh thinker jacob von Uexko would call it is uh, umwelt which is just a uh, perceptual world that that every being lives in and it goes even further in in the sense that like when i said the worm that can't even see the house for example it gets really slippery when you start thinking from from that uh, perspective because you realize that they're what we take to be an objective reality as you as you said is is not really there's really no such thing as objective Mm. as objectivity and even the so-called objectivity of science is called into question um, from this perspective. Yeah, because it's it is an examination, seems to be an examination solely of the perspective that we human beings share. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's that's exactly it. That's that's a big part of it. And also, there are a lot of embedded assumptions in the scientific enterprise that aren't always conscious that actually guide how science makes its investigations into reality and reveals those sorts of truths, like I was saying before, that are supposed to be the same for all observers at all locations. But, I mean, if if we're only finding what our assumptions are leading us to find, then it's not really a finding at all, right? We're just following a path rather than making the path by walking. At this point in the conversation, I struggled a bit with understanding exactly what Jason was saying, partly because it was a fairly complicated concept and partly because it was 
kind of early in the morning, and I wasn't all the way awake yet. But what he seems to be saying by worldviews create worlds is that our perception of the world that we live in is colored to some extent, perhaps a great extent, by the concepts and the beliefs that we have about it. This is along the lines of what I spoke about in DMF 9, where I wrestle with the fact that our emotions don't seem to be just a response to the things that we experience, but in fact, they shape and define the things that we experience. So, as an example, if you believe the world is a hostile place, you will experience the things that happen to you as hostile actions. You will respond to them as you would respond to a hostile action. And therefore, you will begin to color the things that happen to you. Not just in your interpretation of them, but in other people's and other things' response to your response. And your world will slowly become more hostile. This is called, in the cliché, a self-fulfilling prophecy. And so I think that what Jason was saying when he was talking about following the path is that we're simply continuing to see what we have unconsciously decided to see. In my example, we're continuing to see hostility because we have decided to see hostility and not necessarily because there was hostility there. It then occurred to me that most, if not all, of the things that we perceive to be happening to us are very likely not happening to us at all. They're just happening. They're happening to everything. They're happening in the world of which we are a part. Mm -hmm. There's this beautiful perspective that we are just earth walking. You know, we just kind of borrow some of the materials of the earth for a while and walk around for a bit and do some stuff. And then we get returned to that earth. So even from that sort of almost physical metaphor, you can see that, that there were no, we are literally just, we are the earth. Hmm. So what, what impact has this had on how you live your life? And how do you see, as you said earlier, how do you see the choices that you make shaping your own world? You know, how do you see your worldview shaping your world? Yeah, you know what? It's had actually positive and negative consequences as far as, I guess, the negatives, <laughs> just get them out of the way. It's it's like I, I come, I live with a certain level of anxiety about um, through the realization that, you know, I'm part of a culture that is quite destructive um, in a lot of ways. And I can't fully escape that culture, not only in the ways I think, but also just in the way I carry my life. Like I have to get in my car and drive to my job and buy my groceries and use plastic and all those eco anxieties that come up as, as a result. So I can see that it's, that it's, there's something that needs to change, but I also can't opt out. I can't stop Mm -hmm. participating. 
that part of it is has been tough um but the other side of it is through seeing those structures and and the idea that again to return to this idea that that the world that worldviews also build our worlds it i find it empowering because for me when i am meditating when i am reading when i am writing i'm trying to change myself <clears throat> with the understanding that this will have at least some impact in the world i can't say whether it's positive or negative or even if those it makes sense to call it positive or negative i just know that or i guess i just feel that by raising my consciousness in that way i'm uh yeah i'm doing yeah. something for myself right or for the world rather okay and that both at the yeah, same time and, right because that's yeah. the whole thing right because you you also must acknowledge in in your work that um right that none of us can tell the future that we only have the vaguest notion of what impact our actions will have you know no no uh diabolical historical figures said i'm going to build a civilization that's going to destroy nature <laughs> you know right no exactly so the that's the exactly that it. having were not uh, malicious they were just and that's that is that right there is is why i'm also sort of a little bit suspicious about what i was alluding to earlier what i call reform environmentalist approaches to solving problems is that the consequences of of trying to over engineer solutions you know we we don't know the consequences of those these solutions that we're implementing often you know a push in the system here might do something in the system over there that we have no right. no idea um so i mean it's tricky because again these these things like climate change initiatives and carbon taxes and recycling and like these are all completely necessary but it's not yeah. the whole story yeah because they too are based on a story that we have in our civilization which is as you said that we can engineer the environment that's right and even if you want to go even deeper they're also based on a story that uh there's a problem and that we as humans can solve it which we can even have a really deep conversations about whether or not there's even a problem at all insofar as we think it's a problem this is this might be a bit far out for some people but i think it's worth thinking about we only think it's a problem largely because it is leading to well the destruction of of ecosystems other beings and ourselves right but there have been times in geological and evolutionary history where beings have I'll just tell the quick example that I often use in this case. So, you know, I'm not going to get all the exact details right, but it was about three and a half billion years ago. There was single-celled organisms, largely, like that's that's all there really was on 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 Earth, and some of them started evolving and evolved into blue-green algae, which is the first photosynthetic organisms so using the sunlight to to create oxygen at the time the atmosphere was largely methane and, and carbon dioxide and it supported these right. these initial organisms but when these new blue green algae showed up onto the scene they oxygenated the atmosphere 
quote, poisoning the atmosphere, killing the dominant life form of the time, right? But that that oxygenation of the atmosphere paved the way for all future advanced right. life to We are the heirs develop. of that genocide. <laughs> right. We are the heirs of that genocide. Right. That's that's a nice turn of phrase. And who's to say that we aren't paving the way for some future carbon dioxide, plastic loving organism that's going to proliferate and just right. keep the show going? Yeah, the entire yeah, so the is there a problem point of the environmental crisis, so to speak, is because it's bad for us. <laughs> mm -hmm. um, and and for others too, but we're we're making a normative judgment on death, right. which everything in our being tells us we should resist. So it's it's a really um, challenging conversation, but I think it's worth looking at. It, it's an interesting perspective and. And and just looking at the how deep the fear of death guides how we how we view reality and, and the decisions we make. Yeah. But that's perhaps right. a and bit it, of a digression. Yeah, it's a it's a bit of a digression and it's enormously difficult to separate um, a fear of death from a desire to continue living. I, I don't know how to say what I'm thinking, um, because you know, I don't think there's any it doesn't seem, it, it seems like a desire to continue to exist is built into us. Um, it's built into all living things, as far as I can tell. But we have this unique ability to foresee the fact that someday we will die, cease to exist. And what is, what is a correct relationship with that knowledge? <laughs> I don't know if that's the right answer. <laughs> mm-hmm. Well, that's what a hundred years of existentialism has been yeah. trying to <laughs> trying yeah. to figure out. Right. That's the crux of it. Okay, so so to take a step back, it sounds like um, a, a big part of your thesis work that you're trying to embody in your life right now is a kind of you don't necessarily have, feel like you have answers, but you feel like your awareness and ability to raise others' awareness to the fact that the whole situation is larger than us, can have positive impacts unknown to us now in the future. Whew, there's a big sentence, Michael. <laughs> yeah, no, that's, uh, you're really perceptive. You're very, you're really good at, summing up those arguments um because that's just it i mean i can't like i'm in my career i'm moving into teaching now and and what my approach to that is is not as a deliverer of information you know i don't want to fill other people's heads with ideas that i think are true but it's like you said i think the important aspect of teaching and learning is is to do basically what we're doing right now you know having open, honest conversations in uh, a climate of um, criticism, not in a negative connotation, though, just in the idea of throwing everything you got at, at the way you think and seeing what comes out the other side. And everyone that, that way, everyone is ideally learning from their own situated embodied experience of reality and not 
beholden to someone else's version of the truth. You know, that's what these educational theorists like Paulo Freire wrote a book called Pedagogy of the Oppressed. And, and that's the idea that, well, one of the ideas anyway, is that, you know, you can find the truth in yourself. You don't always have to, you don't have to take what your culture is giving you at face value because when you do you're actually just propagating the systems of oppression and power mm. that that are currently in place you know and what do we do with this knowledge that that we do create our worldviews it's kind of this almost awe-inspiring almost terrifying yeah. position in a way because of the responsibility that it seems to imply what responsibility do you think it implies? So where I've come to with that, because that's where my thesis sort of ended, and that was sort of the space where I was like, okay, great. Now I know these sorts of ideas. What what am I supposed to do with this information? And where I've gotten to actually just recently in my thinking is that in this space that's opened up with these ideas, this sort of almost existential void almost in a way of of understanding that that we have the ability to create our the realities in which we live what that where i'm kind of being led with that right now is is that it's not to be filled with you know more ideas about how reality should be or it's not to be filled with ethical systems prescriptive ethical systems that say you should act this way you should act that way because those are all based on the old paradigm of that rationalist deductive thinking so where it's actually gotten me now is to almost a religious place of filling those spaces with not so much with ways of thinking but actually with ways of being these sort of time-honored truths that religions that are thousands of years old in some cases have have carried forward you know these ideals of love and charity and compassion and these these modes of being that are actually in some ways immune to yeah. deconstruction you know because they're not so much rules as they are just ways of moving through the world of which the results you cannot anticipate. It's just a, it's just inhabiting a particular space that then moves yeah. through the world. It strikes me as just um, opening yourself to the experience that you're having. Yeah, opening yourself to the experience you're having. Yes, I think though, and and you can tell me if you think otherwise, but there seems to me to be something even beyond just being open because when you're you still have to act in the world and open it certainly i think everything begins with openness but i guess just for me it's like i still desire a i guess a concept in a way that's a mode of engaging with the world like when i can move through the world with the idea of love in my mind or in my breast then it helps me to I mean, I suppose love is just a state of openness anyway. It's a tough one, yeah, because these these normative judgments we make about what's good and bad actually co-constitute each other, right? It's a very Buddhist idea that as soon as you are defining something as being bad, you're also defining 
something as being good. And when you define something as being good, you're defining something as being bad at the same time. It's the yin yang sort of idea, right? Right. And within each is each. So, and that's not always a place I'm comfortable being, although it's, it's a place that our culture certainly exists in. We, we definitely have ideas about what's right, what's wrong, the ways you can act, the ways you can't act. And it's tricky. I mean, it, obviously, I mean, to organize right. a society, I think you need a level of that sort of right. normative judgment. Way, but that society is behaving like an individual organism in that it's trying to decide which behaviors will contribute to its continued existence and which behaviors will contribute to its demise. And that's maybe why we have a lot of the political arguments we have. People have different opinions about which is which. <laughs> um, mm -hmm. But on a larger scale, all of the experiences that individuals have and societies have are part of the whole, part of the whole of existence of which we all only participate mm -hmm. in a small slice of. Oh. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Yeah, big ideas for a yeah, Friday it morning. It seems to me that there is value in that notion of just letting go of all judgment and just participating in the existence. And yet at the same time, there is resistance to that idea. <laughs> right, right, yeah. Well, it's a scary space to occupy that ambiguity of, of not knowing whether yeah. or not what you're doing is right or wrong. And that's perhaps why we make some of these normative judgments to give ourselves that sort of existential security. But it's a practice, you know, it's a practice to be able to occupy that space of subjectivity yeah. and ex pure experience. And that's, that's really challenging because it makes me wonder how much of the control that we feel like we have or that we want to have is illusory. But you're right. Oh, but, sure. But that yeah. comes maybe back full circle to what you're saying is that that worldview that you have contributes to building your world so there is there there does seem to be some control there just what is exactly the i don't know well maybe not a conscious control insofar as you can't say hmm if i believe right. this then this is likely to happen or you may be able to say likely but you can't say yeah. because i believe this this will happen you know but I just think it's the, the knowledge that that is so is empowering insofar as you can begin work in the world by working with yourself sort of idea. Yeah. That's where I'm going to wrap up today's episode. I want to say that this was a particularly challenging episode to edit because as I listen back to it, I feel like I was not understanding a lot of the things that Jason was saying at the time that we had the conversation and having the benefit of hindsight, I was hoping to be able to articulate some things a little better. And I tried to do that at some point in the episode and I'm not sure I succeeded, but it was challenging to me to leave it alone. But I left it mostly alone, and I had to remind myself that I will have a chance 
to following next week's episode to revisit my thoughts on this and clarify the way some of them were expressed. In any case, thanks for being here and for listening. Next week, Jason will talk a little more about some of the projects that he has coming up that are based on this new worldview that he's been working on. And he has some questions for me as well, which was an interesting flipping of the conversation that I didn't really anticipate when I started it. As always, feel free to reach out to me on my website, deadmansforest.org. And until next week, bye-bye.